Hi, everyone. This is Know Your Food episode 138. For links and more, you can visit the show notes at knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash 138. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Know Your Food with Wardy. I'm Wardy in Southwest Oregon, a traditional food blogger at ganalfglins.com and knowyourfoodpodcast.com. I'm glad you're here. This is the podcast where we're all about ditching those poisonous processed foods, breaking free from the conventional food paradigm, and instead embracing whole foods raised, saved, and prepared with traditional methods. It's fun, it's delicious, and it's healthy. You're on your way to looking good, feeling good, and most importantly, doing good. Now, let's begin. First of all, welcome to everyone who's joining me. I especially want to welcome everyone who's coming in um, live right now for this recording on Periscope. And for those of you that are listening later and want to get in on the fun, watch Periscope app. My handle is at Trad Cook School on Thursdays because I'm planning to make a habit of it of recording the podcast a week, about a week ahead of time on Periscope, and it's really fun to be online with you because the hearts are flowing and people are chiming in and saying where they're from and giving feedback to what we're sharing, and it's really great. And so, Amy in Georgia, thank you so much for sharing um, and for being here. So keep that in mind if you're a podcast listener and you've got some free time on Thursdays, watch Periscope or periscope.tv slash tradcookschool so you can join in the fun. So we are continuing our, oh, this is the sixth podcast in a series on traditional cooking time-saving tips, and I have five more tips for you, plus all along, um, listeners have been submitting their tips, so I've got a collection of great tips from the Know Your Food podcast community to share with you at the end that are bonus traditional cooking time-saving tips. Um, podcasts 133 through 137 are the past ones. So you can go to knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash 133, etc. to go back and catch up if you haven't heard all the other traditional cooking time-saving tips I've been sharing. Um, and I'd love to get your feedback and just share with me um, if any of those work for you or if you have additional tips because, you know, come along later. Even though the series is over, we all love to share. Um, let's see. I was going to say something. And I lost it. So I'm just going to move on. Oh, what I wanted to say was just make sure we're all on the same page. Traditional cooking is the beautiful art of cooking that our great-grandmothers used to do, that our ancestors used to do when um, we did simple cooking methods like sourdough and old-fashioned pickling that yielded pickles and krauts. And those foods were so nutritious. They were so digestible. And when we ate back then, when we ate like that, the modern diseases we have today were not as rampant. So at traditionalcookingschool.com and the Know Your Food podcast with Wardy, um, we are all about returning to those old-fashioned traditional cooking methods. This is not about making your life harder or heaping on the burdens of all the other things you have to do. No, because if you're cooking from scratch and you believe in healthy food and food that heals your body, you're simply changing your methods up a little bit and you're cooking from scratch in other ways. And as I'm about to show you, and I hopefully have demonstrated time and time again in all the weeks past, that traditional cooking actually doesn't take more time. Uh, You're cooking anyway. It doesn't take more time. You're being smart, and you're using simple methods, and a lot of traditional cooking foods cook themselves. So instead of slaving over a stove, you're facilitating stages and steps. And Meg is saying, exactly, yes glad to hear that. Meg herself is a wonderful, wonderful cook. If you're not already 
um, following my friend Megan from eatbeautiful.net, you should be. And Megan is such a good friend and is here in the audience supporting. Thank you for the hearts. Keep them coming. And as you are listening along, feel free to chime in the comments, either with thumbs up, stars. Please do include your first name because I can read it more easily. Um, if you include that, the handle is pretty light, but your comments are not. Okay, so let's jump in with the five more tips I have for you today. One of them I kind of briefly just alluded to, and that is to preserve foods through fermentation, not canning. Now, you guys know I love fermentation, and if you don't already, well, let me say it. I love fermentation. It's not only healthy, you know, probiotic foods are... Uh, kind of a buzzword and people are all about them. Well, you make pro probiotic foods through old-fashioned pickling, which is called fermentation, and I love it. I've been fortunate to be the author of The Complete Idiot's Guide to Fermenting Foods that receives great reviews and has been very helpful in helping many cooks um, across the world bring fermentation into their kitchens. And so many people have written to me um, about how it's changed their lives, and I'm so happy to hear it. Well, here's the thing. Many of us, we might be into homesteading, or we have gardens, and we want to preserve our food. And in our modern world, people talk about preserving foods through canning. And I've done canning, and I still do a little bit of canning. However, something in me always kind of rebelled, because you're a slave to a hot stove, it's hot summer, and you're just heating up your house with gobs of heat and moisture, and it's really time-intensive, and the high heat and sometimes pressure can um, reduce, dramatically reduce the nutrition of fresh foods. Well, fermentation is the exact opposite in many, many ways, because like I said before, Traditional cooking is often um, foods that cook themselves, and fer uh, fermentation, fermenting, is no exception. Fermented foods kind of cook themselves. Um, the word fermentation is from the Latin for vera, which means to boil, and that's because fermented foods look like they're boiling. The fermenting organisms are producing gases, and so the foods bubble, so it looks like it's boiling, and we say it's kind of cooked themselves. Well, they're not cooking with heat. It's a... Um, it's a fermentation process of the, of the organisms consuming the starches and sugars and food and producing all kinds of wonderful things, including those gas bubbles. And the process happens totally hands-off, where a, like cabbage can be transformed into kraut or cucumbers are transformed into pickles. And all you did at the very beginning of the process was like pack your cucumbers in jars and add some garlic and pour brine over the top and cap it and put it at room temperature and those naturally abundant organisms do the work of preservation of turning it into pickles. Similar with kraut. You chop your cabbage, mix with salt, pack in a jar, leave it for a few days and it transforms itself into a fermented food. So how easy does that sound compared to really hands-on slaving over a hot stove canning? Doesn't it sound a lot easier? Now, I'm not saying that canning doesn't have its place because there's wonderful foods uh, that you can can, tomatoes, beans, meats, um, and there's certain benefits of canning where fermented foods need to be in cold storage to preserve them long-term. Canned foods can you know, go in your pantry shelf. So I'm not saying do away with canning, but one way you can save yourself time when you're preserving the bounty of the harvest or certain foods that are in season is to look at methods of fermentation and your workload may be dramatically reduced. And if you have freezer space or extra cold storage space, 
you know, ferment a bunch of pickles and kraut and salsa and all these different foods and store them that way and your hands-on time has been reduced. And I hear in the comments you're enjoying this kind of history lesson. Yeah, just it's just one of those things that the, the Latin history of the word for vera uh, really stood out to me when I first got into fermentation. I love the bubbles too. It's the hallmark of fermentation. Not all fermented foods bubble, um, but I think... Don't we all love it when we have a really happy ferment? And when I say happy, I mean it's bubbly. So I make sauerkraut quite often, and I just love it when it's happy. It's bubbling like crazy, so it's just it's really fermenting away. Uh, so that was tip number one, to look at fermentation instead of canning. Tip number two, it's a particular um, method of fermentation. Carrots seem to be especially happy, K.M. Brooks says. Yes, they do. So there's a particular method of um, fermentation you can apply when you make your sauerkraut to save you loads of time. Now, I think traditionally sauerkraut, you know, families or even communities would grow just loads and loads of cabbage and a whole family would come together and make gallons and gallons of sauerkraut and they would be pounding and pounding and pounding for hours to release, release the juices in the cabbage so that the cabbage would have enough brine to cover itself when it's packed in those big crocks or barrels or whatever they're fermenting it in. Well, we could do that today and people do today and there's beautiful kraut pounders on the market. I have two of them that, you know, you can pound vegetables with or all kinds or pack things in jars, but there's no need to pound your sauerkraut. <laughs> you do this method and this is tip number two. It's called no pound kraut. Um, you simply shred your cabbage, mix it with the right amount of salt, and that's about half tablespoon to one tablespoon of salt per medium head of cabbage. And cabbages vary in density. So I'm talking about like a medium density, like a head of cabbage you pick up and you say, oh, this has got you know good weight. It's not one of those cabbages you pick up and you go, oh, that was light. That's a light density cabbage. So I'm talking about a medium density cabbage about half to one tablespoon of salt per that. So you shred the cabbage, you mix it with your salt, um, you put it in a, well, it's in a big bowl, you mix it in a big bowl, cover it with cheesecloth or a towel or something to keep dugs, dust and bugs out, and thank you for the hearts. And sometimes I'm on Periscope and I'm like, what is with the color I get today? It's brown. Well, today I've got beautiful pink hearts. I think it's probably because I'm wearing a pink shirt. I have this theory that the hearts come on Periscope based on the colors in the video. So maybe it's good that I'm wearing pink lipstick and a pink shirt because I'm getting some better colors today. <laughs> anyway, side note. So you cover your bowl of shredded cabbage um, that's salted and the salt helps to pull the juices out of the cabbage for you. That's how you skip the pounding. And over the course of a half hour to an hour, that cabbage gets good and juicy. If you take a spoon and you... Um, you know, dip in and you get to the bottom, you will have a pool of salty brine there. Amanda, I'm so glad you made it live. Welcome. Uh, so that's the beauty of no pound kraut. So after a half to half hour, 30 minutes to an hour, you've got this juicy kraut you're packing in jars. And over the next 24 hours, the salt is going to continue to juicy up the cabbage. That's not really a word. You know what I mean? it's going to get juicier. So by 24 hours, you need to be in the jar again, packing it down. So by 24 hours, the cabbage is completely submerged by the brine. So recap, you could be pounding your cabbage uh, for 
half hour or so. Or you could shred it, mix it with salt, and just let the salt do the work for you. Now, does that save time? Yes, it saves a ton of time. It makes sauerkraut so easy. I call it no pound kraut. No pounding required. Who here has done no pound kraut? Sev is asking, can any appliance be used to replicate that using a mixer maybe? Uh, the pounding? Well, I'm advocating you don't have to do it at all. And as far as shredding, um, you can use a food processor. I actually prefer to shred just with a knife because I like bigger shreds. Megan is saying, yes, she's done it because of me. Great. And Sev is saying, me? So you've done it too. Good. Well, keep enjoying. Keep enjoying that time saving because then you, you know, during that half hour to an hour, read a book to your children or get on with something else. And um, I do not know what your name is, but I've made it just last week. Great. Amanda's saying, still learning about traditional foods, so one day soon, I hope. Great. And Laura, I like to massage it. Yes, I mean, it doesn't mean you can't massage it or pound it, um, but if you just let it take care of itself, it can make great strides without you. So massaging is kind of like a compromise. Okay, so tip number three. I guess, you know, we're kind of on a fermenting focus today. On these tips, they're time-saving tips that are really focused on fermentation for the most part. So number three is to keep brine on hand. My basic brine, well, let me step back a bit. What am I talking about? Brine is what you pour over like solid vegetables like carrot sticks or cucumbers or asparagus spears, you know, something that's solid that's not going to produce its own brine like a relish or the kraut I was just talking about. You actually have to mix salt and water together and pour them over your vegetables in a jar. And that brine, that salty brine is going to protect um, the fermenting organisms and deter the spoiling organisms. And of course, salt tastes good. So salt is so important. So fermentation, you need salt. And so with those solid vegetables, you need a brine. Well, you can keep brine on hand. My basic recipe for brine is six tablespoons of sea salt, which by the way, sea salt, unrefined sea salt, not white sea salt, but sea salt that has color, browns and pinks and golds. Um, six tablespoons of that dissolved in a half gallon of water. So you can make it a half gallon or a gallon at a time. And it's so convenient, like in the height of the summer, when you're bringing in loads of cucumbers from the garden, and you have brine on hand, you pack the, you know, you, you wash, rinse the cucumbers, cold water, trim off the edges, pack them in the jars, cover with brine. And if you have a jar of that, you just, you know, literally in five minutes, you could have six to eight quarts of cucumbers fermenting away um, and keep it in the pantry. So the idea is you have your brine ready and then you're pouring it over veggies for a quick fermentation assembly. And it does work for most fermentations. Um, I do want to say that occasionally... And I don't know why, but occasionally I will have jars crack if I keep brine on hand. I think there's some kind of like fermentation activity happening with the water and the salt. It could be part of the water. It could be part of the salt or heat. So um, just be aware of that. I think it happens like maybe two, two to three times out of, no, I'm not going to say two to three times. I'm going to say percent, like maybe 2% of the time. A very small percentage of the time I could have a jar crack. Um, and we've got a question coming in from Jamie. Do you put lids on the jars? I do put lids on the jars. And it will keep. I think, Kimmy, I saw you ask a question, how long does it last? Well, I've had brine on hand for months. Um, it doesn't really go bad. The salt kind of preserves the water. 
And, you know, I've had it for months and I probably shouldn't have made that much. But, you know, make enough brine like for a couple weeks in the summer when you know you're going to be pulling things in from the garden and you constantly need it. Uh, just, you know, you don't have to think years ahead or even months ahead, but think weeks ahead. You know, make a half gallon or a gallon at a time and use it up in a couple weeks. Scale back and then just keep an eye on that jar cracking thing. Uh, because if it happens, there's something with your salt or water and your environment and um I'm not going to advocate using plastic necessarily, but you could look at like BPA-free plastic. I don't know. I'm not going to advocate that, but it is an option. What I'm going to, I'm not saying I don't advocate that. I'm saying I'm not going to, I need to look into it more if plastic is a viable alternative. I just don't know one way or the other. Okay, so tip number four here is uh, sourdough bread <laughs> that makes itself. Um, you know, whether you're doing a no need sourdough bread or you're doing like a kneaded sourdough bread, most of it happens without you. And if you have some great kitchen appliances that can do the work for you, like, you know, you fill the hopper. I have a Nutramill that grinds flour, so I fill the hopper on the Nutramill and I'm in the kitchen doing other things, but it's grinding away which is far different than when I used to grind flour in a Vitamix and I'd be active hands-on with the tamper. So it really depends on your grinding appliance. If you're acquiring the flour yourself, of course, you're totally skipping that. But the real key here is a no-need uh, recipe. And the no-need recipe that I follow is either our bucket dough that's in the Sourdough e-course or Sourdough A to Z e-book. Thank you for the hearts, and they continue to be pink and pretty. Um, or I follow the... Um, Einkorn, no-knead bread that's in the Jovial Foods Einkorn cookbook that I love. And all those are so easy. I just did, I do it like every other day at least. I either do it depending on when I need the loaf of bread, but I'm usually doing the night before. And so it takes literally like three minutes <laughs> to combine flour, starter, water, and salt in a bowl and mix it. Kay and Brooks, for your e-course, have super detailed directions. Yes, we do have super detailed directions. And if you're a member of Traditional Cooking School, we have super detailed videos to go along with it. We're currently working on the Einkorn Baking e-course. And coming up in December, I will have a no-need Einkorn bread coming out. But for now, we have the uh, sourdough e-course bucket dough that my friend Christina teaches. Okay, so it literally takes three minutes to combine the four ingredients you need. Starter, flour, salt, and water and mix. It takes three minutes to put them in the bowl and mix them, cover it. This is the night before. The next morning, um, I preheat the oven. I, I like to add a little bit of um, baking soda. So all I do is sprinkle a little bit of flour on the counter so the dough is workable. I plop the dough in the flour. I sprinkle some baking soda and I fold it maybe 15 or 20 times to work in the baking soda. I put it in a preheated um, Dutch oven that was in a preheated hot oven and I put it back in the oven with the dough inside. So the, the Dutch oven is hot. The oven is really hot, like 425 degrees. I put the dough in there and it rises and bakes beautifully. If you're using all-purpose flour, you don't need the baking soda. If you're using whole grain flour, you don't need the baking soda, but the baking soda just uh, reacts with the acid in the starter and gives a lift. So it rises better if it's whole grain flour. And 45 minutes later, I'm pulling a beautiful loaf out of the oven um, and turning it out onto a cooling rack. K 
Kay and Brooks, I have a Lodge ceramic-covered cast iron Dutch oven. I think it's a five and a half or six quart. It's on Amazon. If you're a member of Traditional Cooking School and you go to our Einkorn Baking Resources page, I have a link right to it. Um, so go back and just let's just add up the time that took. So three minutes to combine the ingredients. And then the starter prepared the dough and rose it and pre-digested the gluten and everything like all night long. And then it took less than five minutes. Well, it takes a couple seconds to put the Dutch oven in the oven and preheat. So maybe we're up to four minutes now. And then it takes about a minute to work in the baking soda, put it in the Dutch oven and put it in the oven. So that's another minute. So that's five minutes. And then, you know, less than a minute, you're taking it out of the oven and putting it on a cooling rack. I wrap it in a towel so the crust softens because it gets quite a crust. So five-minute bread. So see what I mean? Sourdough bread that makes itself. It took a total of five minutes from the night before to in the oven because it... It does all the work, and I just facilitated a bunch of steps. And that's how we have the most delicious, seriously, my husband says it's the best bread he's ever had, and our kids, it's the most delicious and the healthiest <laughs> fresh home-baked bread you could have, and it took me five minutes of hands-on time. I, I just can't get any easier. Um, and if you're doing a kneaded recipe and you have like a Bosch or something to do the kneading for you, and then the sourdough, of course, is the same. It's doing all the pre-digestion and rising, etc. Bread is just can be really easy and not, I mean, it's not like one of those things where it's no harder than cookies is what I'm trying to tell you. So if you're already cooking from scratch, you can do bread too. Um, so that was tip number four. Hi, I'm Morty, a traditional cooking expert and food blogger at traditionalcookingschool.com. For years, my family struggled with food-related health problems like eczema and food allergies, but we don't anymore. And I'd love to show you that preparing whole foods with traditional methods is easy, delicious, and super good for you too. So just go to traditionalcookingschool.com free, and I'll show you how easily you can do it too. I'll give you five free videos that include my favorite traditional cooking techniques, plus printable at-a-glance fact sheets as a handy reference. So if you're ready to start looking good, feeling good, and most importantly, doing good, then visit traditionalcookingschool.com slash free today. Okay, so I have more tips. Um, and, I, well, I said I had five and then I have tips from listeners, okay? So actually my fifth tip is from a listener because it's so good. It's soaked oatmeal for breakfast and it comes from Beth. And I could have counted all the tips, um, but these were the first five I counted, okay? So <laughs> um, this is what Beth said. She left this at a comment on a previous episode. Thank you for the hearts, everyone. She said, I'm the oatmeal eater in my family of two. I always soak and cook enough oatmeal for breakfast for three or four days. I add the cinnamon, raisins, and maple syrup when I cook it, and then after... Um, I enjoy the first piping hot serving. I put the rest in a container in the fridge. I reheat the other servings in a Pyrex bowl in my toaster oven, or especially in this summer, I enjoy it cold like rice pudding. When I finish the last serving, so remember she's had it for three or four days. She cooked it once. She had a piping hot bowl the first day, and then she put the rest in the fridge. So, um, and that, so that lasted her for at least two or three more days, just reheating it or eating it cold. When she finishes the last serving... 
I try to remember to soak more oatmeal by placing it in a covered Pyrex casserole dish in the back of the oven with a light on. The light provides just enough warmth and reminds me I have oatmeal soaking in there, and then the process repeats. So isn't that cool? You make oatmeal for one morning and you have breakfast for four. Just a great, great tip. Soaked oatmeal for three to four days. Really, really easy. Thank you for that great tip, Beth. All right, so our final tips are a whole host of tips. These are bonus tips come from Lise. Or I'm not sure if I should say Lisa, but it's spelled L-I-S-E. And thank you so much, Lisa, or Lise. She is writing in from Brittany, France, where she lives. Um, She's been loving the time-saving tips. And she said she lived our lifestyle, which um, traditional cooking lifestyle, simple lifestyle, I'm assuming she means, with her late husband for 12 years in Cornwall, England. So um, her first tip is women working together. And I love this tip. I love it. And I think probably where she um, lived, maybe communities are closer than we are now, but I don't see why if you have a close group of women, you couldn't do that too. Thank you, Kimmy, for the soaked oat, for loving the soaked oatmeal tip. I do too. Um, so women working together. She says, I believe women working... Um, Women should work together whenever possible. She started with new moms who found motherhood, which I think is like so amazing if new moms could do this together or older moms do this and bring in new moms because the first the first time you're a mother is the roughest going, right? I mean, that was my experience. It's the biggest change. Adding the additional children, you've already kind of, you know, transitioned to life with a young child but the first one is the hardest thank you for the hearts they're continuing to flow and they're so pretty um so she said they do a five-day rotation or they do they work together um to bless well i'm not sure exactly but she meet they all meet at one home on monday and they do group cleaning and cooking and childcare, et cetera. So the benefiting, and the benefiting homemaker will provide the lunch. And at the same time, the benefiting homemaker is providing the dinner. So, you know, all the other mothers go home and the dinner then has already been fixed with the lunch. So they've just done a ton of stuff for that woman in her home on Monday. And now this is making sense. So it's a five-day rotation. So if there's five of them, then the next day they spend a couple hours at the uh, the next mother's home and they do the group cleaning, cooking, and childcare together. The benefiting mom is providing the lunch and cooking her dinner for that night. And so five days a week, they're just women working together to group do these things that benefit their families. Isn't that a lovely idea? I mean, if you had some neighbors that were really close or family members that really close, you know, a small village or a small town where you could do that. I know it's amazing, isn't it? What a lovely, lovely tip, Lise. Thank you so much. And Lise has some other tips for us. So I'm just going to continue sharing the things that she did for her 12 years living this lifestyle with her husband in Cornwall, England. Sev, I love it too. She says she did a four-week seasonal menu. Um, so it rotated versus the seasons. So it really, she said she lived in a small town with a market. So she had a lot of seasonal foods available. And so this four week uh, seasonal menu allowed her to know what she was getting before shopping. So that helped with, you know, being frugal and planning and all that. I didn't ex- spend excessive amount of time trying to figure things out. She knew what she was doing based on the seasons. It also allowed her to change with the seasons. So that's a really great, I mean, you have to put in some effort to do that seasonal menu, but once you have it, can't you imagine the kind of time you would save shopping and also money? 
So that's a great tip from Lise. Another one, she and her friends would do group purchases whenever possible. They would contact local producers and they would go in on these group purchases so that would save everybody money and time. Another tip, she did a lot of doubling up and freezing to so she'd have a less pressured lifestyle. Like she would, um, she calls it crumble. She said it's possibly crumb in American English, but I think crumble works in, in, in um, our country too. But you know, crumb topping for on top of coffee cakes or cobblers or whatever. Um, she would do like a bulk making of that. And then she would store it in a jar in the fridge. So whether it's flour and butter or nuts, flour and butter, you know, maybe cinnamon or cloves or whatnot, she would make more than she needed for a recipe, store it in a jar in the fridge. And so then if she's baking something, you know, later on, she can just, you know, put the crumble on top and bake that. I love that. And you can, there, I think we've, I have talked about that in other recipes. I mean, sorry, other podcasts in this series on um, doubling up and doing things in bulk, so it's the same kind of thing. Sev is saying her cousin does the group purchasing in Alaska, and somebody just a little bit ago said that Weston A. Price uh, chapters often do group buys, and definitely, I mean, if you're interested in group purchases, going back to this tip, see if Azure Standard is in your area, and and then contact them. They would probably have a local person who's running the co-op, and you can get in on those buys. They'll have a a monthly or bi-monthly or every other month, I don't know which bi-monthly means, um, delivery date. So anyway, um, two more tips for you. Minimal everything and sharing larger items ensures your class cash flow is not wasted. So her examples were she shares her food dryer and her large mincer where she gr- grinds meat, fruit, and vegetable. And so she shares those with her closer community members. And as I, I think... I'm assuming that others have larger things that they share as well, like maybe it's a mill or a mixer, um, maybe it's a canner, um, maybe it's a big crock for fermenting. Anyway, they're sharing it, and she and the side benefit of that she points out is it enables a social time when possible. And the final tip that Lise shared is she uses vegetable water and surplus juice from stewed fruit for soup and other fruits. So. And she'll freeze them into cubes if necessary. So it's very frugal. She's saving the water and surplus juice, and then she's using it in other recipes. And the way she keeps it fresh is to freeze it in frozen cubes. Don't you love those tips? So I just want to see everybody give a lot of hearts to Lise for sharing all these wonderful, inspiring um, tips. And what I love about them is the feeling of community and people joining together that is just kind of overflowing in these tips. It's just so, so lovely. So I am at the end of my tips now. So if you guys have questions, I have like three minutes to take questions only because as I told you today, this is my fourth, sorry, third of four live events. And so I have a member meeting coming up here in just a couple minutes. So I don't know your name, but weaning off gaps, at what point could I consider trying soaked, I don't know, maybe the oatmeal? Um, I don't know the answer to that. I think when you're coming off gaps, I believe it's like, there's a couple grains you start off on. You'd have to refer to your gaps book. Um, I think one of them is, I don't know the answer to that, but I know the gaps book shares what to wean off of and what things you can start. Uh, Jamie's asking with the no pound kraut, do you pack it in jars after sitting in the bowl for one hour? Yes, you pack it in jars. Even if the brine doesn't fully cover it yet, it's going to continue to release and the juices for 24 hours. So 
a couple times during that 24 hour period, or at least at the end, um, pack it down again. We have wonderful scope. I learned so much from you, Tina. Thank you. And I missed a question. I saw it, but I was reading two at a time. Something about sourdough. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for joining me. I really appreciate it. And for the love and the hearts, this is very fun to record Know Your Food with Wardy live with you. So I'm going to sign off here and encourage you all to visit the show notes, knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash 138. Um, of course, when the podcast is released, because you'll see links and more pertaining to <clears throat> all the tips that were shared today. And I'd love to have your comments there as well. And please consider, if you've missed the fun today on the live recording, watching Periscope, my handle, at Trad Cook School, on a future Thursday um, for a future recording of Know Your Food with Wardy podcast. Now, next Thursday happens to be Thanksgiving. I will not be recording my podcast on Thanksgiving. I'm going to be doing it earlier in the week. I'm not sure when yet. So watch next week sometime. And hopefully you'll catch me live. I'll try to give a heads up, um, but I'm not exactly sure what my schedule is going to be like next week. Okay, thanks for joining me, everyone. God bless you and see you again soon. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope to see you again very soon. Let me tell you what you can do next. You can visit the show notes for this episode. Just go to knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash and then without a space, type the number of this episode. You'll get links and much more information about what we've been talking about. You can submit questions for future episodes. I love to answer your questions on the air, so go to knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash questions to submit them. You can stop by traditionalcookingschool.com to get five free traditional cooking videos from me. And finally, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, the podcast app, or Stitcher. If you're on a mobile device, just search for Know Your Food with Wardy while you're in the app. If you're on a desktop or laptop, go to knowyourfoodpodcast.com slash iTunes right in your browser. And while you're there, please leave a rating or review. I love to read your comments and your feedback makes it much more likely that other people will find this podcast. Thank you so much.